Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to episode 26. Today we speak with Sam Robertson. He studied in health science and in exercise science. And today he has a twofold role where he is the head of research and innovation at the Western Bulldogs. And he's also an associate professor in, at Victoria University. Sam, for many years now, has been working in sports analytics. And that's what we discuss during most of the interview. He's been doing really, really interesting work in that space. And also, he has really interesting perspectives. Some of the things he tells us about is how to use machine learning to help people make better decisions and to help them understand how they're thinking about their decisions. We talk about common misconceptions of machine learning, also interpretability of machine learning. He tells us about using machine learning to improve athletes' performance, measure their contribution to the team, prevent injuries. And he also walks us through the state of sports analytics with regards to data capture and data acquisition, then data management, then the analysis or data science, and finally, the deployment and stakeholder engagement and the change management that comes with getting the insights and the models to be used in the real world. It's a very fascinating conversation. I hope that you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and today I'm speaking with Sam Robertson. How are you doing, mate? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Felipe. Mate, thanks a lot for making the time. I've been looking forward to speaking with you, so thanks a lot. No, mate, no problem. It's a pleasure uh, to be here. Too kind. Mate, at the beginning, I wanted to ask you if you could give us a bit of a background of your career so far. Yeah, sure. Happy to. Uh, I guess a little bit different to many of your guests in the past and probably in the future. My background is actually sport. So I trained as a sports scientist as an in undergraduate and even in my PhD, in fact. So I spent many years working in institutes of sport around, around the world and to a lesser extent professional sport as well before I came back to Australia and did my PhD in a bit of a mix of biomechanics and performance analysis and even skill learning. So a bit of a, a long way from data science in many ways. But towards the back end of my PhD, I, I saw where sport was heading and, and probably other disciplines as well, in particular around the uptake of, of data and, and the use of it in novel ways. In, in particular, I became interested in machine learning. So really, it wasn't until the back end of my PhD that I really saw where sports analytics as a discipline was heading and didn't really exist at that point. And so, yeah, spent the better part of a decade upskilling and, and forging out a career in that area. So I guess I consider myself as one of the uh, early uptakers of sports analytics. 
definitely. And what was it about machine learning back then that drew you in? Because it was so new at that point, it was it's definitely a sexy topic. And it was reminded me, there was a very popular and famous story that was going around at that point around the Italian football club, AC Milan, that, that had used machine learning to predict the injuries of all their athletes in, in a season. And it, it turned out to be utter garbage, which, you know, in, in hindsight, looking back is was not particularly surprising, but it was pervasive or was becoming more interesting to people at that point. And I think the thing that really attracted me to data science and machine learning, well, well data science as a term didn't exist at, at that point. So it was yeah. definitely more machine learning. Were things Things like less about autonomy and, and speed and, and decision making and processing large data sets and more around changing the way in sport that we viewed problems in a linear manner. Yeah, we'll probably talk about that later on as well. But to this day, that's still the main attraction I have with machine learning is it forces the end user to look at a problem in a different manner to what linear aggression would do. Well, I think that's super interesting in your approach because sometimes I've seen people that use machine learning kind of blindly, as in they throw data to the algorithm and they just follow what the algorithm spits out. But I really like the the take that you've done. Could you tell us a bit more about how you see machine learning helping people to make better decisions? Sure. And I think in that statement, you've come across, I guess, some of the misconceptions that we have all experienced in our own workflows, I'm sure, irrespective of the discipline. And and in sport, a misconception that I come across a lot is that machine learning means neural network, that the two terms are interchangeable, particularly in in people that aren't experienced in dealing with data. And there's not only a, a lack of understanding about that, but there's also a hesitancy in the layperson to implement a machine learning model under the auspices of it being a neural network because they consider it a black box. Yeah, I understand that viewpoint. And in fact, I speak presentations quite heavily on on why I often use what we would potentially term a suboptimal analytical solution in when working with sport because I want it to be very interpretable. So we would use a decision tree approach quite often in or a rule-based approach in, in sport because we know that a coach or a decision maker in a sport can go back and have a look through how we've arrived at a certain solution, how that solution's translated or how it is generalizable to new data sets. So just classic data science 101, really. But we use the language of the coach or the language of the sport in which to relay that message. So that's a misconception. Even giving a talk to some high-performance staff that had used machine learning quite extensively last month in the US, again, there was an extreme misconception that machine learning and neural networks were interchangeable, and that's where machine learning stopped. So I kind of make a point about that when I speak around the place to sporting organizations and sporting conferences to talk about the different families of algorithms and how they can force us to look at at problems differently. And, And in sport, we've got some really pervasive problems that we're dealing with from a methodology perspective at the moment. And then there's the more specific questions that we're dealing with as an industry, in particular in the performance or the athlete performance space, because that is where I spend most of my time rather than than the commercial or the business area. So things like uh, how do we stop an athlete being injured? How do we evaluate the performance of a player in in a team sport? How do we optimize a schedule of games to ensure that the players are fit and ready to compete in every single game throughout the course of a calendar year. These are complex problems that are inherently have non-linear interactions of variables going all over the place. And so my argument there is that we really, if we're not using machine learning, we're not going to find very good solutions to those problems. And probably a, a heuristically derived decision from a coach could outperform what we're going to be able to generate in a model. Totally true. And how were you able to carve out the space for 
machine learning and data science in sport when I assumed that there would have been resistance and people wouldn't have been aware of the approaches. How did that process start and how were you able to carve out that space? I would add at the start of my response to this that I'm, I'm very fortunate that the space that I've carved out, so to speak, is a very small one. There aren't a lot of jobs similar to mine. I would like to see that, consider that this area is, is growing, but just for the context for your listeners, I, I have a combined academic and high-performance sport role where I, I work for a university, but part of, well, half of my salary comes from a professional sporting team, so I spend roughly half my time working with them. So that type of role is something I'm a big advocate for, although it does, it's an extremely hectic type of role and it's much more of a 50-50 split to really being two full-time roles, but I think it's a way of the future for a number of disciplines not just sport. And it's probably the reality of, without getting too off topic, the reality of the university sector moving forward that partnering with industry is a must. Otherwise, the university sector won't survive as we know it. So that's probably another good reason for these types of roles existing. But if we look at the data science component of sport at that point, that's an area that, that is growing. Certainly when I started working in the Australian Football League, there weren't a lot of jobs like that. There, there are now people coming straight from either statistics or data science without any sporting background background whatsoever into jobs in the AFL. That certainly wasn't the case when I started in this role five years ago. So it is growing. But as far as kind of carving out a niche area, yeah, there's a little bit of a perfect storm in that as well. That uh, This role was that I'm in now was suited for someone with an academic background, which I managed to have as well. So I guess it's a blessing and a curse that, that my particular blend of, uh, of academia and high-performance sport is not the norm in, in sports analytics. But like I said, I think it is growing, but probably not at the same rate as a straight, what I call a straight data science role in professional sport, which are growing kind of exponentially at the moment. Oh, wow, as well. Interesting. And what does your typical week look like in terms of the involvement with the team? I know that you participate in the matches and tell us a little bit about that. I'm probably smiling to myself as you ask that question. It's changed dramatically over over the course of my tenure here at the Western Bulldogs, probably every six months has been a, a subtle shift in that role. And certainly annually, it's it's changed quite dramatically. But essentially, as you alluded to there, and we've spoken offline around this, I, I was involved in the coaching side of the Bulldogs program, even in 2017. Whereas this year, I probably moved further away from the day-to-day in the on-field and on the training pitch type of work that I've done in the past. And it is much more in a, an innovation space, a, a management of our, our, our research and our, our research students staff. And then, of course, there's the component of work that I do relating to work with other sports partners at the university, such as in our work with the Australian Institute of Sport, with, with Tennis Australia, with some of our, uh, our newer international partners as well, which is quite exciting. So coming back to your original question around a typical week, there really is a, isn't one, which is keeps the role very exciting, but also you know, mentally fatiguing at times. So there's certainly more international and, and national-based travel, probably every every second or third week for conferences and collaboration and activities like that. There's a Real mix says we have a really strong PhD cohort of, uh, I supervise 13 PhD students, so they, they keep me very busy. It's a lot more higher level strategy from the Bulldogs end and the same from the, the university end, but the typical week, it certainly doesn't exist, which is kind of nice, to be honest. That's right. That's really good. And could you give us some, or walk us through some of the examples and I guess projects that you've done in a sort of step-by-step manner to say sort of how did it start? What were you trying to achieve and how you went throughout the project? Sure. I mentioned this earlier, but most of our work in Australian football is focused on the performance side rather than, than the business side. So it's probably best to, to talk about that. And it's also maybe yeah, a point of difference for some of the other speakers you've had on or guests you've had on on the show as well. 
there's a couple of different ways that, that we end up deciding to pursue a project relating to data science. And it's either there's a perceived weakness in our program or our team, particularly relative to what other one of the other 17 AFL teams might be doing. There's often something that I will bring back from somewhere else that I think we should be spending time on. And then probably the third way an idea is originated is it comes from within our, our research team itself. And we decide to pursue something completely and utterly new, which we think is completely and utterly new sometimes someone somewhere else in the world might be doing that as well. That's kind of the three ways we end up deciding to pursue, or the three origins of, of ideas, should I say. We really only ever pursue a project, if, which sounds completely intuitive, but we really only pursue a project if we think it's going to help the team win a game of football. But sometimes it is difficult to connect a very kind of long-term project with that particular output. We have historically focused on really kind of short-term project outcomes, so things you know around a year or less. But we're probably at a stage of maturity now, the partnership between the university and the football club, that we are starting to focus more on the future and for three and five years down the track, which is really exciting as well. So I mentioned earlier some of the problems that we're facing, you know, around stopping athletes being injured, evaluating the performance of a player within a team sport, which is quite difficult when obviously the way that you measure the outputs are with respect to the team rather than the player themselves. That's a project that's ongoing with us. And I think most clubs would be doing something in that space around trying to put a number on what a player provides. And any sports fans out there would be aware in, in their own team sport of different ways of doing that. If you're a fan of football, you, you know, Strikers, of course, are evaluated by how many goals they score. Goalkeepers evaluated by how many saves they make. But of course, it's more complex than that. It's also, particularly these days where we have access to fantastic athlete tracking data and computer vision, we're able to get spatiotemporal information on athletes, uh, where they are, how they create space, how do they create opportunities for their teammates. All of these things are things we're able to measure a lot better than we were four or five years ago. So we do a lot of work in trying to put a value on that player that we have. And there's a number of projects that, that kind of fall underneath that body of work. So things like taking in new metrics that we derive from wearable technologies and trying to develop those insights I was referring to. We use some very cool analytical techniques to work on that in that space. But then there's more the interaction with the human element of that, where we're really interested in how what our coaches see and what our raters see, uh, our scouts see in a player as compared to what the raw data says or the objective data says. And that's really important because whether we like it or not, sport is still a human-based, as are most disciplines, a human-based industry. And so what a coach thinks and what a scout thinks, it really matters. And when the data says something different, that's a conversation starter for us. It's not about the coach or the data being right. It's a, it's a conversation starter about why that's the case. And you know, sometimes fundamentally that causes us to even ask questions that are such as, are they even evaluating the same thing? Or is it the same construct that they're evaluating about when they're looking at, at what a player does and, and how they are, are performing? But then even, even digging deeper into that and, and how humans provide ratings is something we're interested in. So what's the intra and inter-rater reliability of the way an athlete is viewed by a particular coach? If that coach has woken up grumpy that morning, are they rating a player more harshly than they would have otherwise? And, and how can we derive insights from machine learning into that? And even into text mining and, and audio mining, how can we use, for example, sentiment analysis to look at types of words, the types of language that, that coaches use when they're evaluating a player themselves? And I guess to round all that, that conversation out is how can we then use that data to look at projections and forecasts of where a player might be in five years' time and model that to look at how we spend our money and where we spend our money on players uh, and invest because Australian football, we aren't like the Premier League in, in the UK. We aren't like other professional leagues where we can spend as much money as we like. Even if we wanted to, we have a salary cap to abide by. 
So that's an interesting philosophical question or dilemma for us in and of itself is by developing players and making them worth more on the open market, you're actually causing yourself to have an issue down the track with not being able to afford those players. So it's a very interesting philosophical discussion around how much you develop your players versus bring them in and, and acquire them because by developing them, you're costing yourself time and money, but you're not going to necessarily reap the rewards in the long term. So yeah, I mean, it, to, to round that out, it's a really diverse, really broad body of work that we use, that we work in, which involves data science, but also elements of psychology and operations research. So it's, it's quite broad. What's really interesting there is the parallels with other industries. Like, for example, I saw a study where they were looking at judges in the courts and how harshly they give out sentences. And they found that there's a correlation there with how hungry they are and how far away they are from their last meal. So late in the morning, late in the afternoon, they're harsher than early in the morning or early in the afternoon. And obviously with the developing the players, it's really similar to having, a, I guess, a data science team where you're developing your staff and you're helping them grow and be a better professional, knowing that they can move on to the market and command higher salary and go somewhere else and take all the hard work that you've invested in them. <laughs> take, them with, take that with. That's the reality of it. I mean, I don't think that's terribly different in many industries. Maybe it's a little bit more out in the open, maybe in sport, that we kind of go into that with our eyes open, that we know someone might be only with us for a couple of years. But again, it's probably, well, it is much more, even more in, out in the open in, in, say, the US, for example, or the UK in the sports leagues there, where the movement of staff and, and athletes is you know far greater than it is in, in Australian sport. But I must say, I think we're probably heading that way as well. Yeah. So I'll, I'll ask you about, I guess, four of the stages of data science and I'll ask you sort of one at a time to see what it's like in sport. So first one is data capture. Definitely want to hear about how you guys do that. Then uh, data management, and that can be sort of storage of data, how it moves around, the data definitions, how you were mentioning before. Then the types of analytics that you guys do on the data. Maybe we can jump into some examples. And then the last one is around the implementation. Like once you have the analysis, how do you work with the coaches and the teams to bring that analysis to life? So I'll ask you about the data capture first. Could you tell us about what that looks like in sport? What type of data do you capture? Is it done manually, electronically? You mentioned wearables, etc. I think that they'd be quite diverse. But could you tell us about the, the data capture that you guys have? Absolutely. We have three or four main types of data that we collect. And you mentioned earlier wearable technology. That's fundamental to our program. Specifically, that, that tends to come from global positioning system tracking devices, although increasingly we are collecting that using kind of local positioning systems as well for indoor stadiums, etc. So essentially, when any of our athletes are running or walking or, or doing anything, we're, we're obtaining that information on them. So that's, that's something we collect almost on a daily basis. We're collecting information from vision and some of that's being used in a, in a tracking manner as well. And as time goes on, that'll increasingly be the case. But it's also used in a manual manner for coaches to go back and code manually and, and tag events and perceived areas of interest in a training session or a match. Third to that is, is third-party data provision. And in a match, for example, that tagging and coding of events is done by a third party in combination with the league, which is still very much a manual process. But again, I, I would imagine we'll move to be more automated in, in future. There's other third-party data providers that we use as well through either their technology that we might use in the gym when training with players all the way through to 
that's probably the main area that we use it. So there might be a piece of technology where we're looking at the force that an athlete can produce when lifting a weight. Uh, we might look at the strength or the, the force produced by one specific muscle as a potential injury risk, for example. So what we'd call screening data, what we collect on, on the athlete as well. So that's an, another type of data that we collect. And then probably the fourth type of data is what I'd call uh, self-report or, or user-derived data, which is from our athlete themselves, where they're reporting on, on how they're feeling. And, and sometimes that can be in the form of a, a continuous scale or a Leichhardt scale, or it could just be text itself. And of course, we collect that from our coaches and our scouts and those types of roles as well, which I was just talking about in the previous response. So they're our four main types of data that we capture. With respect yeah. to the management, if you want me to move straight onto that, yeah, out of those oh, four first, areas. First, I'll ask you, sorry, I'll ask you with the, oh. um, the data capture. That's really interesting. And it sounds like there's a lot of opportunities, especially around vision and maybe audio as well, uh, mm. in terms of opportunities for people to go and do interesting work in the space and help the technology move forward. Uh, is that right? Absolutely. I think the way that, that football clubs, for example, set up their departments, a specialized role for uh, someone in computer vision or in, in analysis of, of audio or text is, is probably a little way off. It's more probably looking for an all-rounder in, in that space, but certainly the need to use that data and analyze it will be continue to grow and it's growing very quickly now. So yeah, certainly a world where there's full-time people working in, in that area in professional sport is, is not too far away. I think in the short term, there'll be a, there'll be a space of, of consulting and working with third-party providers, at least initially and until, until we get to that stage. But it, it's very close. Once organizations are aware of the time it will save them. I was going to say money. Probably won't save the money initially, but certainly the time it will save them. You'll see wholesale adoption of that. And we're like most industries where there's very much a follow the leader mentality. And as soon as one club does that, then the rest will follow suit. I'm mindful I'm talking specifically about Australian football here, but Australian football for people that aren't aware is probably one of the more resource-rich sports in, in Australia comparative to, uh, to some of the other team sports. So that doesn't mean that we lead the way on everything because we, we certainly don't, but it just probably means we have gen in general general more opportunity to, to do things than some other sports because of, of those resources. That is definitely true. It's the biggest in Australia. Have you seen cases maybe here or maybe overseas where people might be looking at public data or that might be, I don't know, like social media, what players are posting and how that then affects their either their performance or, or how they go about things during training? That's a good question. There is some work it's being done in that space. But as far as I could tell, it there hasn't been a wholesale adoption with respect to that. But again, it, it's probably a little bit removed from the main focus of my role. But yeah, I've certainly seen some people who've done some some excellent work in that space. It's, it's not something that we're spending a lot of time on yet, but it has, it has come up in conversation. And certainly, I think there's a real value in that for a number of different avenues, you know, to get an insight into their personality, to even profile the type of athlete that they are. Because the reality is, this is an area that we don't understand that well yet. And that's a problem because it's extremely important. We know that because we've had athletes present in, and there's examples of this in every sport that are very good physically, tactically in a given sport, but they don't, they don't make it at the elite level. And the reason they don't make it is because they, they don't get the off-field or the mental side of, of the game. They don't get that right. So for us to understand that area better is the first step in us being able to implement some strategies in order to either stay away from that type of athlete or, or work with them to help them deal with the demands of sport better. So it's, it's extremely important. And I'm really excited about that space where it goes because it's a combination of us capturing the data in a better way, but then also 
finding completely new ways altogether to measure things that we're not even measuring at all right now. And then, of course, the analysis that comes off the back of that is potentially going to be quite exciting as well. That's really interesting. It sounds like as a profession, you're looking to measure everything and anything around the athlete, about the athlete. And then at the moment, it's about studying, studying what are the effects of or this or that to try and make them a better athlete. That's really interesting. It sounds like really pioneering work. I guess the philosophy that we have is I kind of reject this notion that there's too much data to know what to do with. And I, I hear people talk about that a lot in, in sport, and I, I don't think it's accurate. I, I don't think we're collecting anywhere near enough on, on the athlete to understand them well. We tend to regress to what we know and what we find is easier. And, and there's definitely availability bias in all of this as well. We collect GPS data, so we tend to refer to that and we look at the athlete with respect to what their physical capability is because it's available to us. But the reality was 10 years ago, we didn't have that. So not many coaches or people People working in sport now can remember a time probably before we even and even had the GPS tracking on our athletes. So I often wonder what they used to look at before we had that. And that's the same in any discipline. I think the greatest example of that in society is smartphones. What did we do? And Google, what did we do before Google? How did we know things? How did we learn things? It's the same here. But yeah, I, I, there's, there's definitely that mental side, the, the psychology of the athlete. We have some measures in place around that, but a lot of them, with respect, is, are fairly crude and they don't tell us what we need to know. So that's definitely the way forward with that, with that question, because there's a whole area of the athlete that we don't understand at all, really. Super, super interesting. Okay, so I'll ask you about the data management side now. What does that look like in terms of data storage, access? You mentioned data definitions sometimes had to be looked at. How does the data management space look? I can't speak for the entire industry. From what I've seen, this is fundamentally out of those four areas. The I don't want to be too harsh here, but probably I'm going to use this word anyway, the worst area that we've, we've managed to kind of address in sport. I think because data science broadly has been an area that sport hasn't directly connected with until very recently. There's been a, a rush to adopt the sexier side of data science, so to speak, the machine learning models and focus on those really pervasive questions like preventing injury and, and evaluating a player, as I was just talking about now. But there's been far less done on on the fundamentals around how do we, all those things you just mentioned, how do we store our data? How do we clean it? How do we access it quickly? But even those, those areas caught up in the minutiae around how do we ensure that we've got the same the same data definitions, which you just referred to then as well? So what I would say in response to that is it's something we, we need to get better at it for sure. And, and we're working on it at the moment, in fact. But across the industry, it, it's extremely poor, I would say, as a whole. And that's certainly hampering the insight that professional sports and institutes can get right now. But the good news is I think most organizations are starting to recognize it because it's going to, the problem is going to be exacerbated as the data continues to grow, particularly vision-based data, which is um, obviously a lot larger and than most forms of data we collect and, and also unstructured, of course. So we will see an improvement in that space. But as things stand right now, it is easily the, the worst of those four areas. Definitely. And I think a lot, if not most industries, really struggle with that part. So like mm. I've seen large corporates where they might sing millions of dollars on creating a big data platform that mm -hmm. never gets used, that they try to service, for example, too many people, they're too ambitious, and it's a project that doesn't provide the value that it was hoping yeah. for. And people at, at the pointy end of the analytics have to make do with the, the data that they can grab themselves and analyze themselves. It's a challenge everywhere. 
Yeah, that was my understanding as well. And it's always good to talk to people in other industries. And I, I make a point of doing that to ensure that I do get an idea on what they're grappling with as well. And uh, we were speaking earlier offline about this. It does amaze me. I, I often beat up on sporters as being a long way behind other industries. But the reality is most industries are, are grappling with the same the same issues, you know, data management, the human data interaction, and even just getting buy-in from organizations. It's comforting in a way, but it's also a little bit depressing at times that we, we haven't made more progress. But I think we're, we're making gains, just probably slower than we'd like. Yes, it is nice to hear that it happens in other parts. And, uh, and I love that you want it to happen faster. So hopefully there'll be some listeners out there that would be keen to help and jump into the, this space and apply their knowledge and support because it'd be super interesting. So the next one is around analytics. And what I'm keen to know there is how do you transform all these different data sources, you know, unstructured and all the variety of data that you're getting? How do you transform it to something that you can analyze? And what type of analysis are you doing? It's a difficult question to answer briefly because there are so many types of data that we are looking at, you know, in response to the first question. The way that we, we look at vision data comparative to self-report data from an athlete on, on a scale of one to 10, how they're feeling, for example, the completely different questions. I think it's probably taking it back a step. There's a lot more to be done on the, on the basic formatting of the data and, and analysis or deriving metrics from the data before we even get to the analysis stage. And because we're at such an early stage of analysis in some of these disciplines, and I'm particularly thinking about vision now, we're really still at that level at the moment before we even get to doing any um, high-level analysis. And, and so I guess to be a little bit more specific with that, if we look at computer vision's role in, in analyzing sport right now, there's an element of detection and tracking of events that, that is interesting to us. And so in that case, we're really just extracting features from, from the vision in order to detect whether someone's kicked the ball or someone's passed the ball or thrown or, or jumped or, or whatever event of interest that, that we have. That's solely of interest to us because detecting that, that movement right now is done by a human. So that's fundamentally why we want to look at, at that particular problem. But then we might be interested at tracking the location of the player as well or, the, or, or players and the ball. In that case, we're less interested in extracting features and classification of movement or actions. And we're actually more interested in, in the position of, of the athlete full stop. So it becomes a, a completely different question to us that we're interested in the precision and the accuracy of, of the ability of a camera system to track the location of those players and, and the ball. And then, of course, the, the depending on the, the efficacy of that solution, we would then use that data to look at certain patterns and, and spatial metrics or spatiotemporal metrics that might define the tactics or the behavior of the team or the players. And so that's where we start to intersect that work with complex systems or even dynamical systems theory and look at the way that teams react under different contextual events in the game. So in offense, in defense, under certain amounts of pressure and how the shape of that team or their offensive side of the team changes under different times in the game. And of course, that then gives us insights into the tactical side of the game, which we can use for coaching purposes. And then the other side of, of vision would be, you know, in pose detection and pose evaluation, which is probably less advanced at this stage, but looking at how the form of the athlete changes under fatigue, for example, can we look at down the track potentially preventing injury by a change in gait of the athlete or a change in the way that they're moving? So it, you can see my difficulty in answering that question. 
collection in, in a brief manner. That's just one form of data that we're collecting in the sense of computer vision that is being used for three vastly different purposes. So then the reason I chose that example is because that, that's such a new one that we, we're playing with as there are other industries. And certainly I think in the future, it will be a real game changer for clubs and organizations that are able to harness that appropriately. And I think probably the NBA represents the best example of that at the moment in the US because their ability to capture that data is far greater than, than most other sports. Their camera systems can be set up inside because most of the stadiums, are, well, all the stadiums are, are covered. It's a smaller court than Australian football. There's less players on the court. It's You get less occlusion from cameras. It's resource rich as well as a sport. So there's a lot of features of that sport that make it quite useful for computer vision. So yeah, I'll probably stop there and rather than go through all of them. But uh, that's an example of one type of data that we're collecting that can be used for multiple purposes. That's really interesting. And what are some successes or examples of sports analytics that you worked in or heard of? Yeah, again, I mean, there's been so many that we've we've had over the journey. And yeah, invariably, a lot of the real successes that I think I've been involved with have focused on very simple user outputs. And that's okay. There's sometimes propensity for people to want to have a, a very complex output because they've run a complex model. And in sport, we, we really, well, particularly at the Bulldogs, we pride ourselves on being able to develop, find a solution to a very complex problem and, and spit out a very simple solution. So I think a good example from a few years back is around the requirements of what our athletes do in training and how that relates to what they do in a match. And I think that seems like a very simple exercise for people that aren't in sport, but we can't always replicate in training what we'd like to see in a match. Um, anyone that's watched a match of, of team sport knows very intense. In Australian football, we have a lot of tackling, a lot of physical contact. You know, there's a lot of injury as well. So it's almost unethical for us to represent that in training every time the athletes go out onto the onto the training field. So whilst we do want to give them that stimulus at some point because they need to be prepared for that, that requirement. We often want to emphasize other components of the game in a particular training drill. We want to maybe overload the athletes with particular pressure, maybe physical pressure, or maybe we want to restrict their time with the ball. So we systematically design a drill to do that. Maybe we want to do that just on certain positions of the, of the ground. And without getting too off topic, we inform our process to that using a theoretical framework, which is essentially what we'd call a constraints-led approach. So we manipulate things relating to the task, so hitting, passing, kicking the ball, the environment, so the field size, the the wind, the rain, the even the grass, the location of the field, and then the last one is the individual themselves. So we, we might intentionally fatigue an athlete beforehand before we actually get them to undertake a drill. So where analytics comes into this is it's extremely difficult to look at how those constraints interact with one another without using a machine learning algorithm because it's very easy for us to sit there and have a look at how manipulating time with an athlete and fatigue of an athlete causes them to pass the ball better or worse. As we start to add a third constraint or fourth constraint, a fifth constraint to that that equation, it becomes, you know, we kind of get this exponential number of combinations of factors that could be deemed as difficult for the athlete to deal with or very easy for the athlete to deal with. And the only way we can kind of reduce the dimensionality of those combinations of factors is using a machine learning model. And, and we've used rule-based approaches to do that in the past, some very simple rule-based algorithms. And the way that tends to work is we focus the coach's attention on the top few combinations of constraints that we can put into a drill that will cause or at least evoke a particular response in an athlete. So we might want a drill that provides a very hard 
set of conditions for an athlete. We can focus on the the three, four, five main constraints that we want to design in a drill by using this rule-based approach, which I can then deliver to a coach and they can design a drill around that. There's all this kind of complex data being captured real time on a particular drill that we then pull together and, and reduce the dimensionality down to just a simple solution for a coach to use. So that's really useful for us with the university partnership as well, I might add, because we can go and publish our method for that. So we do get benefit from that. But then there's also a practical solution for the club in the short term. That's excellent. And can you give us some of the examples in where analytics made a a difference? That's one that enabled us to get insights into something that was happening in training that we we didn't really know otherwise. I alluded to player evaluation earlier. That's another area. Certainly, some of the work in forecasting has been really useful to us as well, where we can, an example where we would see two players that are on a similar trajectory or we would be on a perceived similar trajectory, say maybe they're in their early 20s, but through salary cap constraints, we might only be able to keep one of those players. By developing a forecasting model, we're able to make an educated decision on which athlete we might look for trade or which athlete we might decide to keep. So that's another example. In the injury space, that's particularly useful for us. I'm extremely skeptical about where we've been able to get to with injury modeling, but predictive sense, I I mean. But that's another area that's extremely popular globally right now in in sports analytics. But we've had some success at being able to look at risk factors and let's say on the morning of a training session, be able to make an educated decision about whether an athlete should train or not, or whether they're at too much of an injury risk to actually go out on the field. That's a difficult problem to face because most injuries happen very quickly. That We don't have a, a lot of overuse injuries in the AFL. Uh, there's a lot of other sports that do a lot more running and a lot more training than, than we do. Most of our, our injuries are very acute. So predicting those or preventing them is extremely difficult as opposed to a, a chronic overuse injury, which builds up over time. But again, that, that's another area we, we focus some of our analytical efforts on as well. That's excellent. And then once you have the analysis, how do you go into the implementation and I guess working with coaches and with the teams in order to change decision making and behavior? Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, there's a number of different stakeholders, sporting club, and that's advantageous in a sense. If we look at it, maybe in some businesses where there's a key decision maker, you know, whether it's a CEO or someone else, if they don't buy into your solutions, then you, you really don't have anywhere to turn. We're fortunate and unfortunate in the sense that we have multiple stakeholders, and we're unfortunate in the sense that means we have to balance a lot of personalities and and balance a lot of different philosophies on how to use the data. But we're also fortunate in the sense that if if there isn't a particular buy-in from one department, we can the chances are we will we'll get increased buy-in somewhere else. So it's still a human relationship that we need to manage there. And it's also dependent on, on the question. You know, the example I gave around injury prevention then, that's a very fast moving area where we're collecting information on athletes as they come into the building in, in the morning. And we need to know within 20 minutes, half an hour, whether that athlete can train because the reality is that 9.30 or 10 a.m. They, they're going to be training. So there's historical data we would use there, but there's also data we collect as they come into the building. And so the ability for us to move very very quickly there. It's not it's not quite real time, but it's pretty close, is paramount. The previous example I gave around evaluating a player for contractual purposes or trade purposes, that's something that can move a lot slower. There's obviously strategic meetings that are held around that. And then, of course, we, we haven't spoken much about real-time decision-making in, in games by coaches, but that's the other end of the spectrum altogether where we're getting a real-time data feed on the statistics of the game, on vision, player performance, and the decision to change a strategy or a tactic or, or change a position of a player in a match is essentially real-time. So any data we have to support 
support a coach's intuition or drive a coach's decision, which are the way you decide to look at it. Yeah, is something that we, we're continuing to work through. But what we find a lot with that is, which people not in sports sometimes probably don't think about, is our ability to do things in real time is probably there, but it's not operationally compatible. And, and what I mean by that is the way that we, we change something in a game of football is by sending someone out onto the field, what we call a runner, to tell a player to come off the ground or to tell the team to change things. And that takes three or four minutes for that process. So anyone who's watched a game of football knows that in three or four minutes, things can change quite dramatically again. So it's all well and good having a real-time model, but there's no way for us to implement that right now, um, short of inserting earpieces into every player's ears on the ground and, and allow them to hear what we're saying, which is not legal. So I think that's that's an important note here that we try and focus on operationally compatible solutions to problems. That's really good. How have you gone educating the leadership in sport to be able to trust machine learning results and take them? Very multifaceted approach to that. And there's no hiding from the fact that time to build, build trust with people is, is important, whether we like it or not. I think that's still paramount. But as far as strategies go, it does depend on the stakeholder. And again, having time to determine what is a good strategy to get through to certain stakeholders is really important. Some stakeholders will react very well to case studies that have worked elsewhere, particularly at other AFL clubs. As I mentioned earlier, there is a mentality of follow the leader to an extent. So if a club that has had success recently has implemented a, an approach, that's actually a very good way to get buy-in. I don't think it's a very good way to be a leader in, in the area, but it's a good way to get buy-in for certain projects. I think Showing ways in which data can be integrated with the subjective insights of the coach or the decision maker or the manager is also useful. Not just integration, but sometimes for comparative purposes as well. I mean, I, I spoke earlier around the evaluation of a player and, and what a scout sees versus what the objective data sees. And there's some been, been some really cool academic papers come out in that space recently. And not for the purposes of saying that the evaluator is wrong and the model is right, but almost looking into seeing what the coach can see that the current objective data can't and vice versa. And so that approach sometimes is quite useful just to shed light on where they they systematically differ, the two approaches, and also what the coach maybe isn't seeing at all. And so that to me, that can sometimes be a way of where um, the decision maker or the coach can get buy-in and realize there is a need for something else or something additional to them. And I think the final way in which we get buy-in is through, which is more, you know, I guess at the CEO level or the, or the business side, which is just sheer efficiency. If you can show that a solution is far more efficient from a time and a, and a resource perspective than what's being done now, it's obviously a great way to get buy-in as well. And I think that type of approach will continue to grow in, in sport in the next few years, particularly as we have automated tracking and automated coding and tagging, as I alluded to earlier from Vision. This is a job that's done manually by humans now. The justification of hiring four or five people to do that is going to be pretty difficult if we can train a model to do it based on vision or, or tracking data. So, Super interesting, right? So now I'd like to change tack a little bit and ask you more general questions. And the first one sure. is, uh, what makes a, a great data scientist, do you think? It's a good question. I think any answer I give might be redundant by next week. It's such a fast-moving area. So, I mean, it's certainly domain-specific expertise or those hard skills in a specific area of data science can be one way that you, you, you're a great data scientist. But context is pretty is fairly key there. And, and someone in the full stack sense can be really useful as well. So it's a difficult question to answer. I guess it's probably been a theme through our conversation. 
someone that understands the human element of data. And this might not be the case in 100 years' time, but right now, the human data interaction is very, very real in, in almost all disciplines or all industries. So they need to understand that. And they probably also need to understand the current and the future landscape and not just understand that, but also understand that that it is, well, in most roles, you can't focus on one or the other. We need to provide outcomes for the problems and the scenarios that we're facing now. But if you're not focusing on the future, you're going to be left behind very, very quickly. So I think that's another component of a, of a great data science or a leader in that area. And I guess tied into that is innovation. So particularly focusing on that that future area. I guess that's the main, the main word I would use to describe a, a great leader. And I think sometimes we lose focus or track of what innovation actually is, but it's certainly a, given where data science is headed, it's certainly a key component of anyone who's going to be a leader in that area. That's true. And I like that you brought in some of the aspects of data science leader. Is there anything else in particular that you think makes a great data science leader? I think they're the main characteristics I would look for. I would suggest that, and I, I alluded to it in my previous response, they need to have an awareness of the landscape of data science uh, to be a leader, I, I think. You may have your own domain-specific skills in a, in a certain component of data science that you're very strong at, but without an eye or at least a cursory glance at, at the other areas of, of data science that you're working in, in that data science ecosystem, I, I don't think I would see many leaders not having that awareness. So I'm not saying be a generalist, a data science generalist, but I am saying you need an awareness of that. And I think most good leaders can hold their own in a conversation around all the different components of data science. Definitely. That's really good. And what do you see as the current challenges in data science? The current challenges? <laughs> Where do we start, I suppose? I think we've probably spoken about a, a lot of those already. It's probably having the data management, I think, and having, I guess, what I'd call data agnostic solutions is a really important one moving forward. So and you even mentioned it earlier around data, simple thing like data definitions. It's just a lot of those things are quite basic to get right, but we, we don't seem to be doing that. And I think it's typically related to us wanting to focus on the exciting stuff first, where the reality is if we can get that right, it's going to make everything else, else a lot easier. So I think that's the main challenge. You know, I think others would say that getting organizational buy-in is still a challenge for them, but that's particularly worth spending a, a lot of time on. I think that will happen organically in some way. And then secondly, I think it will happen out of necessity. Businesses won't survive if they don't adopt. So I don't focus a lot of my time and energy on that because I'd see most of us at this stage are probably still what we would term early adopters and pioneers in that area. Certainly historically, when we look back on this time, I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll see it in that way. So I don't spend a lot of time on that because I, I think they'll be forced to go down that path in any case. Definitely true. And mm. what do you see as the future challenges coming up in data science? Yeah, I think I probably answered that, that last question with, with a view to that. The, probably more that the initial response I had around around the data management and not so much the sheer size and scope of the data, but more being able to access that. Privacy is probably another one and security, which is a little bit left of center, but certainly in sport, you know, the ethical component of, of data is, well, I guess data governance is what I'm talking about, is paramount. We collect a lot of data, which I sometimes call covert data on our athletes, but it's just when as soon as we take a sensor off an athlete or they're not aware they're being monitored or explicitly aware that they're being monitored, say via, via vision, which we've talked about a little bit, they can sometimes forget that they're being monitored at all. And that's good for us because we, we tend to get a more valid representation of data from them. But I do have concerns sometimes about where the analysis stops and, and where the capture stops of the athlete and of humans more more generally. And I guess tied into data governance is, is data ownership as well. It's not really that clear at all in sport, like in many in many industries who own certain types of data. For example, tracking data 
you know, the athlete generates that data, the, the team pays for the sensor to collect that data, but the team plays in a competition that's run by a league and then the broadcaster might use that data as well. So you've got kind of four different stakeholders that I'm sure if you asked any of them, they'd all say that they own that data, which is and the reality is probably none of them are right. So that's a challenge moving forward as more and more types and volumes of data are collected. Definitely, definitely the case. What are you most excited about at the moment in terms of what's happening in the field, what's coming up, or maybe what you're working on? What are you most excited about? I've probably spoken about it in some of my responses earlier, but the two areas at the moment, and one of them might indeed become redundant eventually, is is the, the human interaction with, with data. So it's nice to sit here and, and think that a lot of the operational processes and decisions we make in sport will become fully automated in, in future. And, th- and that might be the case. But for the moment, finding solutions that interact well with humans is certainly really interesting to me. Uh, I mean, I, I've got a, an interest academically in, in the psychology of data science or the cognitive side, I should say, the cognitive science interaction with data science. And I, I think that probably comes through in my response here. So I'm, I'm interested in that. And I, and I guess I also discussed this earlier, but how data science can allow us to question the question, so to speak. There's a lot of ways that we ask questions in sport, as there is in every industry, that is very unique. Well, there's a lot of dogma attached to that and history and tradition and allowing a really exciting part of of what I do and, and what others do that I've seen is how a data science approach or a machine learning algorithm, particular family of algorithms, can completely and utterly change the way that a decision maker or an organization views a, a question or views a problem and then finds a, a superior solution to that problem. That's that's a pretty exciting part of my job right now. And frankly, it's probably the part that I um, I enjoy the most. So those, those two parts. And yeah, I know that's not a, a pure data science response, but I, I think it's accurate about where we're at at our industry at the moment with respect to the human component can't be ignored. Definitely. And I think it's a really, the approach that you've taken is innovative and really great in terms of teaching the human what the factors are and how to make better decisions from mm-hmm. the machine learning model. That is fantastic. I will ask you about the, um, what a lot of people call the imposter syndrome. So in data mm-hmm. science, it's such a big field and a lot of people feel like they're not, you know, either not a, a good enough data scientist or they feel like, you know, bad for X or Y reason, and they feel like they're a bit of an imposter. What do you think about the imposter syndrome in data science? I mean, it's a nice segue because in my previous response, I talked about the cognitive science, data science interaction, and there are some really cool, very smart people working in that area around the world at the moment. I think it's it's relevant here. In my observations, the prevalence of the imposter syndrome in any field, not just data science, tends to be fairly strongly related with the complexity of a field or its kind of scope. And I think that's true in data science now. It's very easy to experience that because there are so many facets of of data science and it's very difficult to be good at all of those or it's probably impossible. So I think it's a discipline that's, that's ripe for people experiencing this. And I'd imagine that it's more prevalent here than it is in some disciplines. And that's, say, fundamentally in data science right now, I'd say you, you kind of got two choices to specialize or generalize. And, and if it is the latter, as I said, you, you're going to probably experience imposter syndrome quite a lot. And of course, 
even the other way, I mean, with, with special, if you do choose to specialize, there's there's that paradox of the Dunning-Kruger effect here, isn't, isn't there, you know, where you've got people who are better, or the better you are, the probably more you realize there is still to learn. And so you probably experience the imposter syndrome more and more that way as well. So I think at either end of the extreme in data science, you're going to have people experiencing that quite a lot. So, and of course, fundamentally, you've got around us social media pressures as well, which represents a an unrealistic expectation of the workforce and what's going on and what people are spending time on. And then, of course, we've got the algorithmic biases that are in, inherent in, in some of these these social media platforms as well, which which again cultivate a an environment or a representation of an environment which is not not reality. So that's exacerbating the problem as well. But if we look at it in a positive sense, I think it can be a driver when people experience it. I think when I've experienced it, I've tried to look at it in that way, a driver to be better and to be ambitious. But I would say that's probably that's not the, the common experience of it. But I think we have to be concerned about the younger cohort coming through for their mental health <laughs> around that that area. And, and also, I'm generalizing a little bit here, they do tend to be hurry to get to that next stage of their career. So in summary, they can be at risk of more than others and maybe not deal with it as well as others might. So it's an interesting area. And you can probably tell I'm quite keen to see how it manifests itself now and in the future. Definitely. That's a good way to approach it. And I really like that you mentioned the, the Denny Kruger effect where you know the more people know, the more they feel like they don't know. And the yeah. people that know very little, they feel like they're experts sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, I've got a couple of slides I use often in, in presentations around it, but I, I think it's particularly true in the context of data science for sure. Definitely the case. Awesome. So I just have one more question for you, and it's around takeaways. What piece of advice or what would you like to leave the listeners thinking or yeah, piece of advice for them? I'll probably come up with a couple of, of quick ones. Most of them I've already touched on indirectly. Feasibility and interpretability of solutions in the field will tend to outweigh the precision or the accuracy of a model. And and I think people coming from straight data science into sport, that's a good piece of advice for them that if you have a solution that is operationally compatible, as I, to use a term I used earlier, that is slightly performing less accurately or less appropriately than another model that's, that's not as compatible to, for rollout in the field, I think that's a lesson they need to learn pretty quickly that the one that is interpretable by the coach, the one that is feasible, the one that is probably cost and time effective is the one that we need to go with. And that, that might not be just true in sport. It might be true in, in other industries as well. That's a takeaway for people coming from data science into sport, I think. I guess some other ones around the human side of data science as well is I like the idea of um, something we use, uh, we're starting to use more now of, of running a pre-mortem before running a, a data science project. So kind of focusing on the end outcome. So keeping the end in mind when you run a project, but also I think it's important to focus on the worst case scenario as well. And that might be me um, as a natural skeptic, but that's really important as well. So what's the worst possible outcome that could have as a result of this project? So, and knowing that, of course, the outcome's more than likely going to, to fall somewhere within the worst case and the best case, of course. I think that's not always looked at because I think people that aren't from data science that are working in organizations don't understand uncertainty very well. And so I think that's a solution that I use to overcome that. And I guess from a, a real team perspective about working in teams of people in data science, but also in, in other areas is just ensuring that you create an environment where ideas and input can come from your entire team. I think people talk about this one a lot and it's not particularly, I don't think it'll come as a surprise 
to anyone, but I don't see it done as well as it should be. And, and even when input is asked from people at, of all levels, how that input is then filtered and, and used and disseminated and, and turned into a solution for the business when it is a good idea in the first place, I think is not done particularly well either. So yeah, there's probably three pieces of advice that for different people at, at the stages of, of their data science journey. Absolutely brilliant. Mate, thank you so much. This has been extremely valuable and yeah, really, really great. Thank you for sharing your experiences, your knowledge, everything you've learned. Thanks so much for that, mate. No problem. It's a pleasure and uh, thank you very much for having me. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.